Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellenbecker, founder and senior wealth advisor for the Ellenbecker Investment Group. I want to welcome you to our special series of Money Sense, specifically dedicated to providing valuable information regarding the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. For nearly 30 years, I have been helping listeners learn how to relate many of life's situations to their finances. This pandemic has caused wide-scale disruption in nearly every sector of our lives. No matter your personal situation, we strive to meet you where you are at, both financially and emotionally. Our guests during this series include a futurist, economist, physician, psychologist, as well as local Milwaukee business professionals to get their perspective on how you can apply their insight and expertise to your financial future. This important series will be aired on WISN AM 1130 during our regular Money Sense times, which are Saturdays at 2 o'clock p.m. and Sundays at noon. They will also be available on demand at ellenbecker.com slash money sense or on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. We hope you will find these informative and be sure to share them with your family and your friends. My guest today is Terry Pavlik, and Terry is the founder and president of Pavlik Investments. He's located right here in Wisconsin, in Delafield, Wisconsin. I have been friends with Terry for 20 plus years, and Terry also manages all of our bond portfolios for our clients. And one of the reasons that I like that is number one, here he is going to be with us today. I get to talk to him personally about different things that I believe are going on in the market. He helps give me clarity. And we have been so pleased with the type of bonds and the ability to bring comfort and to have our clients. I always tell them I want them to sleep at night and I want to sleep at night. Definitely. So when you can bring people into your sphere of professionals that understand who you are, understand the value that you put on the relationships with your clients and understand the expectations. I mean, that's a marriage made in heaven. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> and so Terry, when we talked earlier, I told you that my, um, my discomfort was with the news and how every time I turned on the news, there was um, sensationalism. And really it was like trying to take a drink out of a fire hose because either it was coming out so fast that you couldn't comprehend it, or it was trickling out so slow, you couldn't figure out how it applied to you either. And so I'm hoping today that we can talk about the stock market a little bit and talk about the interest rates. I just am, you know, looking at refinancing uh, my real estate, and it's just at a little bit over 3%. And that's pretty amazing to yes. be able to do that. But you know, we've seen the market look like a roller coaster. People were panicking at the very beginning. We've seen it come back. We do anticipate that there's going to be some volatility going forward. We've got an election, which is the unknown. But I see absolutely no reason for people to want to jump off that roller coaster while it's going, sell out their portfolios, because for us, of course, we are always looking at high quality bonds. We're looking at high quality stocks. But if you know what you own, and if you have a plan, you don't need to react to something. You have the ability to stay, stay current with what your plan is. And so can you yeah. help people understand a little bit what was going on and what's been happening? Those age old themes of knowing what you own and <laughs> um, 
having a strategic allocation as well as perhaps a tactical allocation. And, you know, the strategic is the long-term allocation between stocks and bonds and whatever other, other, um, other asset classes you might have, and then tactically reacting to perhaps shorter term changes in the market. But I agree with you. There's, there was no reason, in fact, um, to change your long-term allocation between stocks and bonds. And that's the thing you set up at the beginning that is sort of going to guide you over more than a couple of quarters or weeks, but over years, right? And if you had that allocation set up properly coming into this big sell-off, um, you rode through it pretty well. And in fact, to the extent there were bonds in your portfolio when the market was down 37%, maybe it was a time to take a little out of the bond market and put it in the stock market. You know, something I always say to my clients is, I'm going to tell you to put more money in stocks when it's absolutely gonna make your stomach turn. You're not gonna to wanna to do it, but that's the contrary nature of how you make money in stocks. You stay the course and then you allocate into stocks when they're down. You know, the old saying, buy low and sell high. And you know, Terry, most, all of those stocks that pay dividends that both you and I really enjoy owning for our clients, they all pay dividends at the end of the quarter. <laughs> so the yes. market went down at the perfect time to buy more shares. Um, it did. And uh, it was a little trickier perhaps this time because some of those dividend payers decided to suspend them or, or cancel them, but not the big companies. You know, the big stalwarts, most, for the most part, uh, maintained a pretty healthy dividend. Um, and even, you know, in this downturn, I guess one of the things that was kind of the double whammy was, first of all, uh, unlike most recessions, we did this to ourselves. We, in a sense, voluntarily closed our economy. And that's not usually how it works, right? It kind of sneaks up on you and the business cycle turns and interest rates are going up and uh, businesses start to slowly let people go and things like that. But we sort of all flipped a switch and decided we'd go along with the government and stay home for two months. And, um, you know, kind of what do you expect? The economy is yeah. going to shut down. Then in addition to that, the, uh, the added bonus, and I say that sarcastically, was that the uh, OPEC oil producers decided to have a ginormous price war right at the outset of this and drove prices ultimately to negative, which makes no sense. But that's perhaps a topic for another seminar, actually. Um, but those, those two things uh, really kind of shook the economy. Uh, Terry, when you look at shutting down the economy, it's the craziest things because there's always winners and losers and, and every, every situation, every downturn of the market. And we have seen some companies that are just have gone gangbusters, have tripled, quadrupled their businesses. And then there are businesses, of course, like restaurants and some of the people who are associated with that and the suppliers. But even for the suppliers, when they weren't supplying the restaurants, they were offering more supplies to the grocery stores because people were staying home. Right, exactly. <laughs> and in that here's the thing. I mean, as, as a country, we consume a certain amount of food every day, whether that's in a restaurant or from a grocery store. But it's, it's like pushing on a balloon, right? If, if it's not at the restaurant, you're going to get it from somewhere because you have to eat. Uh, so you're right. The suppliers, for the most part, held up. And the obvious um, companies that did really well were, you know, Zoom and those kind of telecommunication or uh, ability to have meetings over the internet type companies, Apple, those kinds of things. But also some that you um, maybe wouldn't come immediately to mind, like a Walmart or a Target. 
they've done very, very well because yes. they were able to stay open and obviously they supply things that people need. Well, and of course you look at restaurants and people not even maybe being healthier, the food chains were able to stay open because they were drive-throughs and that was what they did. Mm -hmm. And so it's an interesting phenomenon of the people and, and how some companies so um, willingly and creatively flip their products around so that they could provide services that were needed and they were able to stay afloat and even, you know, have profitability. Uh, that's the that's the one of the hallmarks of a relatively of a very open market economy is that you allow that creativity to kind of manifest itself and uh, all the businesses really need to know are tell me what the new rules are and I'll figure out a way to <laughs> um, make my not not cheat but make myself right. thrive in the new environment and to an extent you can do that. So I'm sure Terry, they would like to be back to a more normal environment. You're you're managing stocks and looking every single day. What do you think the impact of COVID-19 is going to have on the marketplace and on businesses as some businesses um, take off and grow, some businesses go away, could be um, purchased by another company? Um, what, how, what are you looking for when you're doing your evaluations and looking at stock? Well, uh, it, you know, every, every recession and recovery is different. And this one is certainly unique because as I said, we, we've done, done it to ourselves. So the solutions um, maybe are a little different as well. I think, first of all, the reaction of the um, federal government and, as, and also the Federal Reserve was uh, amazing. And normally it takes um, the, the federal government a very long time to get a stimulus plan in, in place. For example, in 2008 and 2009, um, the, um, the stock market was rocked uh, really at the beginning of 2008 and then it kind of recovered and then in, two, in September of 2008, all sorts of companies started going bankrupt and going under, Lehman Brothers being the most notable of those. The stimulus package didn't get passed until I think February or March of the following year. So there were five or six months where the federal government was just horsing around. I, in fact, I remember they had that TARP plan in October and they voted against it the first time and the market sold off terribly. <laughs> that didn't happen this time around. We had major stimulus um, plans from both the federal government and the Federal Reserve almost immediately. And in fact, the, um, the idea to add another $600 to unemployment benefits, that is a significant benefit uh, to all of those that are unemployed. Just using Wisconsin as an example, I mean, our unemployment system, and they're normally administered at the state level, tops out at $370 a week for anybody who makes $35,000 or more. And then the federal government puts another $600 a week on top of that. So you're looking at, um, at least through the end of July, making $970 a week, which is $50,000 a year. That's a way better benefit than we've ever had historically. So I think that to the extent um, restaurant workers and the other kinds of um, people who are maybe dependent on tips and like things like that for income are out of work, this... Uh, this unemployment program really keeps them whole, maybe even more than whole mm -hmm. um, over this time period. Now, I guess the question is what happens at the end of July, but hopefully by then more and more states will be reopened and 
uh, there'll be opportunities for those folks to go back to work. One of the um, one of the facts that we see sort of supporting um, my theory that they are more than kept whole is the savings rate. The savings rate has exploded in this country, which you wouldn't expect that to happen in a deep recession. But the savings rate is something like 30%. And so <laughs> normally it's five. Right. So that means that people are are putting this money in the bank, which is smart from a financial perspective, right? Because you don't know how long this will last or what the future holds. So I'm, I'm heartened by that. That was significant. And then the Federal Reserve did significant things. They've um, all sorts of stuff to support various aspects of the market. And as you said, keep interest rates low. You, you mentioned you might be refinancing. I did. Yeah. <laughs> I did refinance. Um, my real estate. And, uh, you know, that's going to allow me to save. I think I figured it out, uh, you know, seven or $800 a month. So yeah. that's significant. Did you catch it in the twos? Well, on the one house, I did a 15 year rate yeah. and that was uh, two and uh, five eighths. So yes. that was amazing. Yes. And, um, and on a different property, I had something close to three. So, but in any case, they were, the key is how much lower are they than what you were paying, right? Right. I know. That's I the key. Caught them in the twos. I caught it in the twos, too, and I just checked today. And for a purchase of a new home for a 30-year mortgage is 3.31. Yeah, that's, that's a mean, wonderful and, rate. And, you know, the thing of it is now's the time for people to, when you reestablish that, and if you have good spending <clears throat> habits, I mean, I am not a proponent of paying off your house because you can't eat your house, you right. know? But right. look what the market's done. And so having a financial advisor, having someone that you can sit down and talk to, to make good decisions when the interest rates are this low is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, right. I, you know, I too used to be a proponent of paying off your house as you got toward retirement. But mm -hmm. when you can borrow money at 3%, which is slightly below the 50-year inflation rate, <laughs> you're paying it back. You're paying it back with future dollars. And I, we can talk about inflation, the inflation impact of all of the stimulus, maybe in a little bit. But you're paying it back with cheaper dollars. And what else could you do with that money? Could you put it in the stock market or partially in the stock market and make six, seven, eight percent over yeah. 10, 15 years? I think likely you could. So yes. with a plan. With well, you, right. Somebody's got With to manage a plan. That. My guest today is Terry Pavlik, and Terry is the founder and the president of Pavlik Investments, which is located right in Delafield, Wisconsin. And Terry, you spoke a lot about the stimulus packages and the um, money that is being put into our economy. And I'm wondering where, how that worked with the um, interest rates being so low. We're seeing, you know, phenomenal opportunities, but yet people don't often understand how does that work? We see gas is low. We see financing and refinancing is low. How does that is going to affect us in the long run? And of course, that also takes in inflation. And with that, we'll be right back. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellenbecker. I am the founder and the senior wealth advisor for the Ellenbecker Investment Group. My guest today is Terry Pavlik, and he is the founder and president of Pavlik Investments at Delafield. And we have had a long relationship, a long friendship, a long relationship of Terry really managing the fixed income portion of our clients' portfolios for us. Terry, you know, when I say the interest rates, you can go out today and get refinance your home. 
for a 30-year mortgage for 3.31, there are some people out there that are really sick to their stomachs because they have their cash in the bank and they would love to see 9, 10%, 11%. So a lot of people don't really understand that there's always a winner and loser on every side. And so for a lot of seniors, for a lot of people who rely and choose to now live on interest, um, it's not a time that you can do that, which I think is one of the reasons to emphasize the importance of a diversified portfolio. Because if you have all your money in cash right now, you're kind of the loser. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, and we're not talking about weight loss, right? right. So that's <laughs> probably not great. Uh, yeah, I just, I just today, before uh, we were speaking, I had to look up the rate of return on a money market fund. You know, all of, all of our funds are all of our cash in our accounts here are swept into a money market fund every day. The money, the yield on the money market fund is 0.01%, not zero, not a 10th of a percent, a (laughs) 100th of 1%, nothing, right? Nothing, nothing. $5 on a $50,000 deposit in a year. So um, essentially zero, Uh, not quite, but just about. And uh, there's two sides to every situation. And as you point out, while we were talking a few minutes ago about um, being able to refinance our debts at lower rates, if you have no debts and you're depending on uh, income from a money market fund or something safe, there isn't going to be any. And that's a little bit of the strategy of the Federal Reserve is to force people to reach out on the risk spectrum a little bit further. That's how you get the economy started again by forcing the money market investor to maybe buy short-term bonds and the short-term bond investor to buy medium-term bonds and the long-term bond investor to consider stocks or something like that. But that's how that all works to percolate people further out on the risk spectrum and eventually beyond stocks. I mean, we talk about just marketable securities, but what about making that investment in a piece of equipment or buying a property and renovating it or those kinds of things? Those are even further out on the risk spectrum. So that's what they're trying to do. Um, I think the seeds are being sown for money market funds to rise, but it won't be until this recovery really takes hold and starts to take off. And then we'll begin to see some inflation. You know, Terry, when I talk to clients and it seems like most people can relate to um, owning a business or wanting to own a business, working for someone in a business. And I always say having your money right now in savings and in a money market is like having each one of those dollars, think of them as an employee, and they're all sitting in the lunchroom drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes and eating sandwiches. <laughs> they're yes, not and, doing anything. And, and otherwise unproductive, you know, otherwise totally not, not generating any, anything. Yeah. And people go, oh, I never thought of it that way. Right. But that's what it is. Because every dollar in your portfolio, you should think about an employee. Because ultimately, someday, that portfolio is going to be your company where you're going to start taking an income and hopefully bonuses off of when when you retire. So if people can think about their portfolio as as if it is their own business, I think people would start to be more concerned about it. They'd make sure that the employees were able to work well together, that they had a good plan. You know, (laughs) very good. That's very good. (laughs) And and that they were at least doing something. You yes. know, rather than sitting, drinking coffee, sweep the floor, clean up a little, do something <laughs> productive. And, you know, the, I guess the, to bring that analogy to what, what your firm offers and mine too, but um, even in the short-term bond portfolios that I manage, uh, 0.01% is not very good. But if I 
um, look out into the bond market, even on something that matures in six or seven or eight months, I can probably earn a half to three quarters of a percent. Now, we're not going to get rich at a half or three quarters of a percent, but if you have $100,000 in your checking account and you can make a half a percent on that, 500 bucks, right, versus nothing, why wouldn't you do that with very low risk? You've got to have all of your little, as you say, employees doing something, even if it isn't huge, it's something, and it adds up over time. So. Well, I, I think a lot of people don't do that because they don't know who to call. They don't know who to trust. And we've all heard nightmare stories, but it's really, you and I have always said, it's a gut feeling. You sit down and talk to somebody who's going to really understand what it is that you're trying to accomplish. But I think people get stopped because they don't know where to go. They don't know who to trust. And, and a lot of people are afraid to change something amongst change. They'll say, well, maybe when this is all over, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll change it. And it's funny because I just put up a new billboard and it says, trust your intuition. Call. Yeah. And, and it's not just intuition, maybe about your investment portfolio, but about your physician, because I can tell you how many people will say to me, I knew something was wrong, but I just didn't call the doctor. Yeah, you know, right. trust your intuition. Everything you need to know, your gut will really tell you. Yeah, you know, a, a corollary to that is, and do something about it today. I mean, people like to just say, oh, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. And then pretty soon in the healthcare field, that's really an issue, right? Yes. Because you put it off and then how many times do doctors say, if I would have seen you three months ago before this, whatever got worse, we could have done something. But now we have to do this other thing that's not as good. <laughs> you know? Yes, it's so, true. It is it's true. very true. Carrie, you mentioned before inflation. And yes. I would have to say that when I look at inflation and I can change the numbers of an anticipated inflation going forward, inflation is the thing that impacts portfolios the most. It's not the return on the portfolio. It's, you know, even the risk, because we can control risk by what we purchase and how we purchase it and how we um, blend investments together. But inflation can be horrific. And where I see inflation really having an impact, of course, is in healthcare, um, end of life types of things, yes. you know, memory care, having to have a lot of um, help, different medications. And so can you, Talk a little bit about inflation and where we are on that today. Yes. I mean, in, in some ways, this is like walking through the village crying wolf for the 15th time because, you know, we are old enough, um, I'm sorry to say, to remember pretty wicked inflation in the 70s and early 80s when inflation was 10% a year. And I've told this story before, but I remember as a, as a teenager having a summer job where I actually got a pay raise in the middle of my summer because inflation was so crazy. Now it was probably $2.75 $2. an hour to $3 an hour or something. <laughs> but nevertheless, I mean, who hears, who's ever heard of that in the last 25 or 30 years, getting a pay raise for a college kid or a high school kid in the middle of their summer job? You know? right. But that's how bad it was. So um, I talk about inflation pretty regularly and people say, gosh, there just hasn't been any, you know, in a few little areas, but the national um, statistics don't indicate it. But let me offer you this. All right. So uh, here, here's how big the stimulus plan was. This is by the from the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. So it's not me making these numbers up. Some, it's an organization that looks at this stuff. 
Um, first of all, Jerome Powell, right, the chairman of the Fed, said just a few weeks ago that we're not even thinking about raising interest rates. So they're keeping interest rates at zero. The, between the Federal Reserve, legislative actions, and administrative actions, we've already spent $4.4 trillion in stimulus. What's authorized but unspent is $5.8 trillion. So we're talking about $10.2 trillion, 5.8 of which hasn't even been spent yet. That's, a, that's um, in an economy that's 21 trillion, so 50% of GDP. That's a massive number. If you compare this to 2009, the stimulus package that uh, the, at the beginning of the Obama administration, the total value of the stimulus package was 5.8% of GDP. And we're talking about 50%, so huge. If you look at back to the depression and look at the total of all of the stimulus that was put into the economy during the 10 years of the depression, it was 40% of GDP over 10 years. This is 50% locked and ready to go. I, I can't imagine how we don't have a recovery in that environment. <laughs> but furthermore, once we get back to some sort of normal, this is a lot of money sloshing around. And, um, you know, the old definition of inflation is, too many dollars chasing too few goods. Well, we've created $10 trillion here to chase probably not a significantly greater number of, of goods. So I think that once we get on the other side of this and we have the recovery and it really gets rolling, um, I think that you'll start to see inflation um, perk up a little bit. When we get back, could you, we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, would you just talk a little bit, I've seen the word deflation out there. Yeah. Um, people talking about that. Can you just give the, uh, and if you can do it really quick, we've got about a minute here before we take a break, just the difference between inflation and deflation. Well, I mean, okay, just maybe something just to carry us over. You know, when oil price, when gasoline prices went from two and a half dollars to, uh, you know, a dollar 80 or something, that's deflation <laughs> and everything gets kind of depressed, but it doesn't usually last long. You know, we're not yeah. going to have a permanent deflation in this country, not with the way us and the rest of the world are printing money these days. My guest today is Terry Pavlik. He is the founder and president of Pavlik Investments in Delafield, Wisconsin. Um, and Terry's been on the show. I can't even count how many times yeah. um, that he has Lots. been on lots, several, several yeah. times a year. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellenbecker. I am the founder and senior wealth advisor for the Ellen Becker Investment Group. My guest today is Terry Pavlik. He is the founder and president of Pavlik Investments in Delafield. And Terry, as if you've been listening to him, is absolutely amazing. He is so well-versed in the things that are going on in the world as he is managing portfolios for his clients, my clients. And he has always been able to articulate what's going on in a way that people can hear. So Terry, I'm really happy that you're on the show today because it just seems like there's been so much going on and it has been a roller coaster ride and it's hard for people to really get their arms around how does this affect me and what can I do in the future? And one of the things you said earlier that was just so fabulous is maybe people are building a new habit for savings. Yeah, well, that's true. Uh, part of it is because um, I think the, the jobless benefits have been significant and, it's, and there hasn't been anything to spend it on, right? You've been <laughs> locked at home and you're getting a little bigger check. So this, uh, that's good. It would be a good habit anyway. Uh, there was a time in our country maybe 20 years ago where the savings rate was virtually zero. And that means nobody's saving for the rainy day. 
most people don't save for a rainy day and they should. And maybe this is a good reminder of why you should. Mm -hmm. So it's great that the savings rate is up. Hopefully uh, some of that will get spent, but also, you know, you want to have that cushion. So maybe a higher savings rate. That would also make sense demographically. In countries where the population is getting older, people tend to save more. And uh, America is one of those places for sure. Uh, it also provides, you know, just to keep circle back and perhaps beat the dead inflation horse. <laughs> it also <laughs> provides some some protection against future inflation. And uh, just to finish a point, I was I didn't get to uh, in the in the previous segment. Um, you know, inflation I think is not a problem today, really. But I do see some anticipation of inflation already reflected in the bond yield curve. Uh, if you look at the whole level of interest rates, of course they're very very low. But at the longer end, in other words, bonds that are maturing in 7, 10, 20, 30 years out, uh, those interest rates have not fallen nearly as much. And so the bond um, yield curve is steepening. And when you see that happen, it can be for a couple of reasons. The first is that expectations are that the economy will pick up in a very strong way. And I think that's probably like likely. But another factor in all of that is that um, down the road, the bond market is anticipating some pickup in inflation. And I think that's, uh, that's also very likely. Uh, I, I think in three years from now, yields um, will be twice as high as they are now. You know, I think it'll be that robust of a, of a situation. Now, that's not necessarily going to be huge because short-term rates are zero or close to it. So, but, um, but you'll be able to earn probably 4% or maybe 5% on a, on a bond portfolio in just a couple of years. And that's, uh, you know, I guess to segue into bond management for just a second, that's why we have laddered maturities, right? We always want some of our bonds coming due every year. Um, and one of the benefits of doing that is that you can participate in a period of rising interest rates. And that will be a gradual process over the next several years, but it's certainly going to happen. You know, Terry, when we're talking about the bonds that you purchase for our clients, I want to make it really clear that you are actually purchasing bonds for us. Our, our clients own um, their bonds. own individual bonds. You and bet. people get people get a little bit confused when we're working with a new client that has a portfolio that we're evaluating. And we try to explain to them the difference between owning an individual bond and owning a bond within a portfolio. And there is a huge difference they'll say, well, they're guaranteed. It oh, says, well, you know, they're, they're, they're AAA rated and, but you can't guarantee a bond within a portfolio with a manager managing it for you because it's swept into a whole bunch of other bonds. Like a mutual fund. Yes. Like, a yeah, mutual, can, right. can you okay. talk about those? Because oh, sure. People do get confused between the two. Those are very different things. Now <laughs> for stocks, I don't, I mean, if you wanted to use a bond, a, a stock mutual fund. Okay, great. Um, maybe that would work for you. But with bonds, my attitude is when you're investing in bonds, you know, one of the big issues is safety. You want to make sure you're going to get your money back and you want to earn some interest, but you're not out there really to take tons of risk. And so when you own an individual bond, uh, you, you know the interest rate or you at least know how to calculate it. And you know that on a certain date in the future, you're going to get your money back. That's the maturity date. That's every bond has a maturity date. Think about all of the risk that takes out. If, if I told you, okay, let's go buy IBM stock just to pick a stock. Um, and you wondered, well, okay, what's it going to be worth in the future? I can't tell you with certainty what the price of IBM stock will be at some date in the future, say two years from now. But with a bond, I can. 
assuming they don't default. And, you know, you, you deal with that by only buying highly rated bonds, which we do. Uh, so that takes out tremendous amount of risk. I know what day I'm getting my money back. I know what, what interest rate I'm going to earn between now and then. What's, what are the variables? The price of the bond can move around between now and maturity, but I know if I hold it till maturity, I know exactly what the price will be. So it, it will be a transition. Uh, the, the price change will be transitory. It won't last. When you're in a bond mutual fund, however, that's not the case because this is a giant portfolio of bonds run by an advisor, a manager who's picking bonds and their goals are very different. And they, you know, bond mutual funds have some of the highest turnover of all mutual funds there are, which doesn't really line up with low risk, does it? You wouldn't expect high turnover, but some of the biggest bond mutual funds have turnovers in the two, three, 400% range, which means if it's 400%, it means they're turning over the entire bond portfolio every 90 days. To me, that's a lot of trading for what benefit again? Well, and a lot goal, of costs associated with well, it. Well, exactly. Because the goal, the, the mutual fund managers are incented to beat some benchmark. They're not necessarily incented to um, ensure safety in the portfolio and those kinds of things. And uh, if, if they're turning over the portfolio that fast, then tell me when do those bonds mature in your portfolio? When, how do you eliminate that risk of vo that volatility? You never do because there's always new bonds in there that you didn't know they bought and sold. Whereas if you own a portfolio of, a, of some individual bonds, you can tell, you can manage the dates on which you're getting your money back and you can manage that. And uh, that eliminates tremendous risk. So. And so Terry, in our portfolios, we take, and we look at how much we wanna have in fixed income and in safety and cash equivalents and things like that. And then we divide up that portfolio at least three quarters or better that go into individual bonds. And we have a very small amount that we put into a mutual fund strictly for liquidity. Right. And it's, that's a, and it's that's short. a good reason. And it's short because I, because mm -hmm. a bond may not be coming quite due and we don't want to sell it. So we right. have some liquidity, but the beautiful part that people don't understand is in this last market when it was crazy, we had all these bonds and when they came due, we bought the longer bond out. And now we were building a very strategic high yielding bond portfolio because we didn't need the cash. We could take our spending out of the profitability of the stocks. I love right. that strategy. Yes, right. That's well, that's how you're supposed to do it. It works great when you can minimize risk and generate a little bit of yield. And uh, that's a good transition to make. And I do agree that for um, liquidity purposes, you, um, you want to have a bond mutual fund. It's much easier to transact that than it is to go out and have to sell, be forced to sell a bond uh, because the bond, um, the bond market is not like the stock market. There are no exchanges where you can um, post your stock for sale or bid to buy. And, you know, it's kind of a central location. The bond market is much more over the counter where you put up bids that are stocks that you want to sell perhaps, but then you have to wait for somebody to come along and make you an offer. Well, and and you, it's not the same thing. You know, Terry, the thing with us as well that I love about it is that there are so many fantastic bonds that come due that you find that other bigger organizations that have these huge mutual funds within endowments and all of these different other, other areas and mutual funds that they won't look at them because it's not a big enough piece, even if it's right. a million or two million. So we can take the cash that we accumulate from our clients and say we need 
you know, a million dollars worth of bonds and you can go pick and choose and we drop them into our clients' portfolios. Yeah, so you, I do that all the time. That, that's yeah. one of our huge advantages. I, um, you know, it's at, at some level, it becomes not worth my while. But when I'm looking at the list of bonds available with our custodian, sometimes there'll be three or four bonds, which is three or $4,000. But the yield, they're, they're just trying to get rid of them, right? And the <laughs> yield is so attractive that I take the time to, uh, to buy that one and put it in one of the client portfolios. And, you know, over time, everybody gets some of these, yeah. but uh, that's an advantage. If you're, if you're yeah. running billions of dollars in, um, in a mutual fund, in a bond mutual fund, you're not going to look at that. That's no. totally a waste of your time. So, yeah. but we have those so, little advantages. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Terry, let's take a look at some of the things that people can do today to really take advantage of the stock market and of the bond market. My guest today is Terry Pavlik. He is the founder and president of Pavlik Investments, which is located right in Delafield, Wisconsin. My guest today is Terry Pavlik. He is the founder and president of Pavlik Investments in Delafield, Wisconsin. He works very closely with my team at EIG and all of our clients. And it has been, um, as I said earlier, a marriage made in heaven because <laughs> Terry, Terry truly has taken the time to understand our philosophy and to work with us very closely on our clients' portfolio. And one of the things that I saw during this COVID time was that a lot of people came to us. We've gotten so many new clients and so many new prospects because they had a chance to sit and look at their statements. And they started to look at what they had and they know that they, they didn't understand what they had. And they had the time to make the phone calls and to sit down and to do evaluations. And, you know, Terry, I think that is one of the one of the blessings that have come out of COVID is that we've learned to spend more time with our families. We, you know, became more interested in some of the things that we didn't have time to be interested in, such as our investments and um, our homes. The, you know, there again is one of the places where home sales, you know, um, Home Depot and all of these different places and people doing home projects were just amazing. Landscapers, you know, yeah, and going for right. flowers. So, but I think in terms of finance, one of the things is that there are things that people could do right now. And if someone is sitting with a portfolio of stocks and they say, boy, I don't know if I own the right ones. I'm not sure if I did well or did badly. I don't know what I'm paying someone to do this, or maybe you're not paying anyone. How can people take that first step, Terry, to sit down with you, sit down with me and maybe reevaluate what they have? Well, uh, that's a very good point. I am a huge believer in getting a second opinion when it comes to these things. And it's, it's really sort of an outgrowth of what's happened with some of the major banks and their, quote, wealth management divisions over the last decade or so. I mean, I used to work in one of those at a predecessor to a major bank when I was managing mutual funds in a, you know, when I was much younger. But um, what's happened is uh, everybody's kind of in, in a lot of these institutions been put into, first of all, all mutual funds um, and a variety of them. And then um, kind of a cookie cutter approach. So once you dig into the specific mutual funds and, you know, they've got 20 or 30 of them, which is, I think, um, a whole nother subject, you dig in and you see that, you know, little old ladies have a bunch of three or four high yield bond funds, which are junk bonds. Maybe they shouldn't have that. Maybe that's inappropriate for them. Or they've got themselves in some futures related uh, mutual fund. And you ask the client, what, why do you own this? And they go, I have no idea. 
Well, I would like to think that my clients and perhaps yours have at least some <laughs> understanding of why they own what they own. To go back to the, one of the first things you said today, you know, know what you own. And if you don't know why you have it, well, somebody's not communicating with you very well, or um, maybe you weren't listening, but I think probably the, the former rather than the latter. So we, we, are, we, we always think you can do a, you know, it's worthwhile to have a good review and let, yes. I dig into it, I'm sure you do. We'll, we'll explain what you own and why we think maybe you shouldn't or never should have owned some of these things and what our suggested um, substitutes are. It's like going to the mall for the very first time and you walk up to the directory and there's an arrow and it says, you are here. <laughs> yeah. And it's figuring out where you are. But Terry, I can't tell you how many times I have sat down with a client and not a client, but prospective client and say, how much are you paying for management? Or what is the expense ratio of your portfolio? And they have no clue. Yet how many things in the world do we buy without knowing what it costs? Yeah, almost never. Well, never. That's, that's sort of a problem in our industry, right? I mean, I, I'm very proud of my industry, but there are some areas where we could do a lot better job. And, and frankly, disclosure on what the cost of mutual funds are or a portfolio of mutual funds, people think, well, it's free. No, it's, it's not free. <laughs> There's always a cost in the fund, but you just don't see it, which is, I don't wanna say it's deceptive, but it's not as obvious as my fee schedule where I send it out with every statement and you know exactly <laughs> what you're paying. That's pretty clear. Um, so you have to dig a little harder again uh, most folks don't even know where to begin to look for that information. Well, and most folks don't realize that there's fees on top of fees. And it's not that they're wrong. It's just that you need to know. And we had a client that came in that was using a different manager and they were paying in total almost 2.5% in fees yeah, see, that's on the investments. How can you make any money? Right. And it's not, yeah. you have to know all of those aspects and it should be transparent. If you're, in a, if you're in a balanced portfolio today, and let's just be generous and say the stock market's going to make 10% a year, but the bond market's going to make, say, two, and you're 50-50, that's 6%, right, to your portfolio, and you're paying 2.5% to the advisor, yes. they're earning almost half your, half your profit you're paying in yes. fees. That seems and like a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> it seems like a lot. You seems know, like a lot. You know, we try to keep our internal expenses and everything down on any of the investments. And our fees haven't changed and since I started the company 25 years Mine either. Ago. I've never changed my fee schedule. And you know, I've forgotten. We both came out of the banking business. Yeah, we did. I was we in did. the trust company too. Is so. that good? or? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> that's I guess good. My guest today is Terry Pavlik. He is the founder and president of Pavlik Investments, located right here in Delafield, Wisconsin. Terry, as always, thank you so very much. And I just hope that everybody listening to this knows that they can take that step forward. It's, it's a little bit like cleaning out the closet. You know, it's a little messy in the beginning, but when it's all done, you feel so good. And some of the things you get rid of, some of the things you keep, and some people start all over, but it's not a, it's not a, a bad, it's not a bad thing to do. And it's not no. that difficult because we walk you through it and we do all the research and we come back and tell you exactly where you're at. So thank you again and you're have welcome. a great weekend. Thank you for tuning in to our COVID-19 edition of Money Sense. Our goal is to provide valuable information so that you can feel more confident in your financial decisions. You can listen to this show and any that you may have missed at ellenbecker.com slash money sense, 
or on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. To discuss these topics and more with one of our wealth advisors, call us at 262-691-3200 or visit ellenbecker.com for a complimentary consultation.